each brand kind of feels like it has its own personality. So depending on the history of the brand and who's the business owner and how long the people have been there, you really get a different feel. So Burger King gets run in like a very aggressive, sharp manner with young pedigreed people who are moving around a lot, almost kind of feels like a finance culture at that brand. Whereas Wendy's feels much more like a family brand. People have been there a lot longer. Their process for approving a franchisee is a lot more get to know you over time, see you in different environments, whereas Burger King's process is a lot more, we've underwritten your deal ourselves. We want to compare our and your underwriting to see if we think that you're sharp about how you're thinking about the business and realistic about what it can and can't do. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. What's up, everyone? This is the Wolf. Today on the show, we have an amazing guest. His name is Michael Horowitz, and he's a former Wall Street professional turned franchise owner. Michael has spoken to every big name fast food brand you know, from McDonald's to Wendy's to Pizza Hut. But today he is the owner of 20 Wingstop restaurants. And in our conversation, we talk everything from searching for traditional businesses versus franchises, how to get in front of these big food brands and get a shot at buying one of them, how to evaluate them, and even intelligent things to consider that now Michael only knows from being on the other side of owning a Wingstop. I think you're going to learn a ton from this conversation. And if you have any interest in food brands, give this episode a listen. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Let's just start at the beginning, right? How did you end up getting into franchises? What were you doing prior to it? So my background was in investing. I had done venture capital, I had done real estate, and it was really the prodding of a couple friends who I was really interested in working with who approached me about doing something entrepreneurial. And the three of us decided that we would try to do that in the franchise space and spend about a year and a half meeting with brands and looking at businesses and looking at acquisition opportunities and eventually put together a deal to buy seven wing stops in Ohio. And that's what kicked this all off. Amazing. And so did you go from a W-2 job into business ownership or were you at business school? I did go to business school, but I was working a W-2 job right up until we got the LOI signed. So I was actually doing a little bit of this on the side and quit the day we signed the LOI. Did you and your friends start right away saying, let's buy franchises? Or was there other business searches that happened? Part of the reason these two guys teamed up with me is I had actually searched for business for about 18 months, a couple years prior, was not focused on franchises, just wanted a good small business that I thought I could grow. After about 18 months of not getting a deal done, I wanted to make money again. So I went back to a regular job. But shortly after that, they approached me about the franchise thing and we got that started again. And that's interesting because I think at least on Twitter, search funds and entrepreneurship through acquisition has become kind of a big trend, I feel like, you know, rather than start. So for people who don't know, rather than starting your own company, 
you acquire an existing business that has a history of cash flow and there's ways you can finance the acquisition of those so that it's not super expensive and it's just not risk-free, but a less risky way to become a business owner. And so I just want to hear from you, Michael, like you did a self-guided search, it sounds like for 18 months. What was your takeaway from that process? And did you get close to ever acquiring a business? Yeah, I remain enormously excited about the search fund ecosystem and think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. And I think what's particularly interesting about it is that there's such a variety of businesses and there are tons of businesses that you will discover if you go down that path that you never knew even existed as businesses. But you can find something that really fits your personal lifestyle goals, your financial lifestyle goals, et cetera, whether that's buying a business that makes a half a million dollars a year in a no-growth industry or buying a business that makes $2 million a year in a high-growth industry. I came close on a couple of deals, all businesses that I never knew existed, the most interesting of which is actually a Christmas decorations business. They do all of the major installations for Christmas displays outside of buildings predominantly in New York City. Never knew that was something that you know had a big established business, but they've been around 40 years. If you've lived in New York, you've almost certainly seen their work. Great owner who had done it for a long time, but unfortunately sold it to another industry player. And that was kind of the final straw of the excitement of hoping that was going to close and having it not to say, okay, I think I should move on. It's always fascinating to like find the businesses that are out there. And that's, I feel like, a prime example. Would that have been, you know, without revealing probably some proprietary stuff you learned in the process, like, that strikes me as an incredibly seasonal business. I mean, would, would that have scared you? Yeah, super good question. And obviously, it's seasonal in that everyone orders their product for one point in the year. But it's not seasonal in the respect that the business had set up their customer payments in a way that evened out and smoothed out their financials throughout the year and enabled them to have a consistently profitable business. And there's a lot more work that goes into what they do than you might expect. There's year-round work going on in designing these, keeping them pristine, storing them, packing them, unpacking them, etc. When it comes to search funds, like I'm biased, obviously, right, with franchises, but I almost think I've rarely seen someone who's done the search fund model incorporate franchises. It's usually existing small businesses, you're on biz buy sell, and maybe you're looking for off market deals, probably you're working with some brokers. But now that you're on the franchise side, do you think that it's almost easier to find because there's established brands you can go after and look what's available? For sure. If you're looking to buy a business, QSR and franchises in general are a really good space to start, given that it's an established hunting ground. Not only do you know all the brands out there, but you can also find out all of the existing franchisees of those brands in their franchise disclosure documents. And you can also reach out to the brands in many cases for help getting connected to people who may want to sell. So it's a lot easier place to start searching if it's something you're considering. Would you consider as a searcher to ever do like new builds versus just acquiring existing locations? I don't think building just from scratch as your starting thing fits the search fund model, because in that case, you're truly starting a business that has no history in your particular franchise's case. But it's absolutely going to be a component of really any entry that someone makes into a franchise system by acquiring, because the goal of a franchisor is to grow their network's revenue and grow their location count. 
And so if they're going to invite you to be part of the system or approve you to be part of the system, they're going to want to see that you believe in their economic model to the point where you will put money into developing restaurants or locations for them. I guess my thought is if it's an established brand that has, let's say, 300 to 500 locations already and the economics, let's say, are good, that's pretty solid proof of concept that if you build it in your market, as long as you're a competent operator, you should be able to reach it. But is it more just the time it takes to still like get to cash flow profitability that you think doesn't fit the search fund model? There's definitely just a much bigger element of risk in it. Even a location or a company that's proven their sites in a bunch of geographies, there's always risk as you go into new geographies of how that brand will be recognized and performed. There's also risk in established geographies of just you picked a lousy site that doesn't happen to work out. I mean, we've built several new wing stops and we've built ones that do exceptionally well and we've built ones that don't do as well. And that's just part of the game. Moving beyond search funds, what other brands were you looking at and evaluating in the QSR fast food space? We probably looked at or spoke with just about all of the major ones that you or your listeners have heard of. And I think there was probably broadly a group of like 20 leading QSR brands Burger King, Wingstop, Jimmy John's, Pizza Hut, Wendy's, Taco Bell that you've heard of that we were interested in. The key piece, I think, for anyone who's interested in doing something like this is getting in front of that brand relatively early on, telling your story, telling them why it's a brand that you you are interested in committing capital and your time to, and finding out if that's something that resonates with them because there are brands that were not interested in working with us. And that was good to know up front before we went and contacted a bunch of their franchisees and burned a bunch of time and resources looking at a deal that we were never going to get approved to buy. That's fascinating. I mean, did you guys have specific criteria? Because I'm just hearing like even from Jimmy John's to Burger King, right? Initial investment per location, which obviously you guys were looking to acquire existing businesses to start. But still, like just the investment profile is pretty different from like a Burger King to a Jimmy John's, right? Burger King is far more expensive. I would guess lower margin than a sandwich shop. It could be wrong there. But what was your criteria going into it? And did those variations mean much to you from brand to brand? Yeah, great question. Really, you hit on the biggest criteria for us, which was we wanted to be with a brand that had established a presence nationally or as close to nationally as possible, which generally means they've probably got close to 500 or more units as well as a brand that had been around long enough to have seen performance through economic cycles, something that was going to be durable, needed to focus mostly on QSR franchises and not on fitness franchises or some of the other businesses out there like Mako Auto Body Shop has a long track record of that. And in fitness, for example, a lot of the brands are newer. I personally have a viewpoint that there's basically never been, in my opinion, a fitness trend that has lasted for multiple decades. Things become popular and then they become unpopular running plain old gyms. SoulCycle was super big, then not so much. I love that as just a pure play investment thesis. Americans love to eat. And when it comes to fitness, eh, it changes from year to year. <laughs> That's good. Fitness is very trendy. Like even now still, I mean, Orange Theory was founded over a decade ago at this point, which is crazy to think because they've done incredibly well in the 10 or 11 years they've been around. But there's so many boutique fitness concepts out there that are very specific. And I do wonder, the market can't support every single one of them at scale, that's for sure. So it will be interesting to see how F45, how Orange Theory and these other brands are doing five, seven years down the road. And I guess just for people who listen to this, you know, maybe they think of Burger King and Pizza Hut as these big corporate entities that they've probably dined at 
but talking to someone internally at those companies and actually with the intent of potentially buying a location what is that like are you on the hot seat is it a normal conversation you know what's the dynamic like there each brand kind of feels like it has its own personality so depending on the history of the brand and who's the business owner and how long the people have been there, you really get a different feel. So on one hand, Burger King is part of Restaurant Brands Inc. They're owned by 3G Capital, which is a you know very aggressive private equity firm, super smart group of people. And so Burger King gets run in like a very aggressive, sharp manner with young pedigreed people who are moving around a lot, almost kind of feels like a finance culture at that brand. Whereas Wendy's feels much more like a family brand, People have been there a lot longer. Their process for approving a franchisee is a lot more get to know you over time, see you in different environments, whereas Burger King's process is a lot more we've underwritten your deal ourselves. We want to compare our and your underwriting to see if we think that you're sharp about how you're thinking about the business and realistic about what it can and can't do. Not saying other brands wouldn't do that as well, but just a different feel in how much they value we like you versus we think you're smart versus we think you're you know, just a financial resource for us, et cetera. It's really funny to hear that. And I wonder too, like, was there any brands that right away just said, hey, we're not interested simply because you and your friends, from what I've understood, you know, you didn't have any restaurant operating experience. Yeah, we came in with absolutely no operating experience. So our pitch was, hey, we're generally smart, accomplished guys, but we will absolutely not be the people running this business day to day in the units. We will hire the best people we can to do that and we will manage them well. And that message resonated with a lot of people, but it certainly didn't with some. McDonald's and Domino's, probably the two most notable, those systems really only tend to approve franchisees who have actually come up as employees at one of their restaurants at some time in the past. And so that's created a really successful, like two of the best ones possibly out there, but you really can't get into it as even a super experienced Wingstop franchisee. If I get there 20 years from now, it's not going to open the door to Domino's for me. Some of these big food brands, and even if they're open to outside restaurant owners, just a lot of times when a franchise gets big enough, the M&A between franchisees, right? It just happens internally. There's usually a list of like the biggest franchisees. And so if a smaller one is like, hey, I want out, I'm going to sell. They just go to those big franchisees and they say, hey, do you want to acquire some more stores? And that often makes it harder. But I know I'm I'm harping on your due diligence a lot, but I just think it's interesting because you have experience just at least speaking to so many big name brands that I feel like people are very curious about. So like, and I've gotten this question on Twitter from people who say, hey, like I can't even get a response from big name brand XYZ. So, I mean, were you just going to their website and filling out the forms? Is that how you got a hold of them? Or is there some secret sauce you realized to at least get your name to the top of the pile? Yeah, I don't know that any of our conversations came from filling out a form on a website. I think always it was a a warm introduction that we got from one way or another. So some of the sources you might think about for that are obviously you're going to need to bring capital to the table to do this. And so presumably you've started to look at lenders or build some relationships with investors or whatnot. And either on the lending or the equity side, there's somebody who says, 
oh yeah, I can introduce you to the franchise development team at XYZ and say that I'm interested in backing you to do this. Or in my case, we had my two partners were public markets investors or are public markets investors still. So they had relationships with some of these brands that have publicly traded shares and they were able to get introductions through people on the investor relations side. In other cases, literally just LinkedIn. Oh, I've got a mutual second degree connection to so-and-so. Let me see if they can make an intro. But really what you're bringing to the table for this brand is going to be a huge determining factor of how easy and how much attention you get from the brand. You know, if you're just a guy off the street and you may be the greatest guy who works his butt off and is really smart, but if you come in saying, I've never worked in a restaurant, I don't have any investors right now, but I really love your brand, it's unfortunately not going to really take you very far because there's not anything you have to offer that someone else who's calling them isn't also offering. And I think that's just the cold, hard reality that people will need to get wrap their heads around is these big name brands. There's so much competition, just even for the attention of the people internally, right, who can pull the strings and help you get FaceTime and potentially, you know, further down the line to actually buying a location. So that's super good advice. And so moving towards Wingstop, you eventually settled on them. You and your partners acquired seven at once. Can you walk me through just, you don't have to share, you know, specifics, but generally, how did you go about financing and acquiring? I mean, right, seven locations at once. And just so people are aware, I mean, Wingstop in their FDD, the initial investment range per location is 315K to about 958 or 48,000. So it's not cheap to build one of these. So you got to imagine it's also assuming they're performing on the average, it's not going to be cheap to acquire seven. So yeah, if you don't mind just walking us through that deal. So that deal actually came from Wingstop Corporate. We had gotten connected, I believe in that case, it was through a professor relationship from business school to the franchise development representative and explained that we really liked the brand and we thought that there was an enormous opportunity to grow with them, asked if they knew of anyone who was a potential seller in the system. They connected us to the franchisee in Columbus who had some personal circumstances and had decided to sell his business. So we were able to put a deal together with him. As far as financing the deal, we had lined up a bunch of investors when we started this with three guys. We'd be buying a business with 20, 30, 40 million dollars of revenue and really all of us diving into it full time. In this case, the seven restaurants had significantly less than that. And the purchase price was small enough that between a lot of debt and then equity that the three of us had saved up from working, we were able to do the deal entirely with our own funds. So that worked out really well and kind of got lucky on timing. 2018, food cost was improving for the brand from where it had been. So that was a positive tailwind for us. And in 2019, Wingstop started delivery, which we had expected and kind of known was on the horizon, but didn't have any clarity on how it would work or timing. But that was another huge boom. So within 18 months, the business looked a lot stronger than it had when we bought it. Not that it wasn't strong, but it had just grown substantially and the PL had improved. Amazing. Yeah, you love to see that. It's nice to get uh, luck in the right direction. And on, on top of luck, I should also mention, you know, we made a bunch of silly mistakes during our due diligence and missed things. So that luck was extra important to kind of cover up for the things that we did not do a good job of. Okay. Any nuggets of wisdom there for like things that you wish you knew about while evaluating? Yeah, I think my best piece of advice would be 
if you're financially experienced, you get a P&L and you're immediately excited to dig in line by line and go through your whole due diligence thing. But when you don't know a lot about the industry, it's not so much what's on the P&L that you should worry about. So the two big misses for us in diligence were the company was not providing healthcare to its employees because it wasn't big enough, but it was right on the cusp. And so within a few months, I realized, oh no, we're going to have to be providing healthcare to all of our employees. And that's a big expense. And it's just something, there was no healthcare line on the P&L. We didn't really think about it much and shoot, that was a big miss. And also point of sale fees. You obviously pay a decent amount of money in most cases to a franchisor for all of your technology equipment. And in this case, there had been some upgrades that came with some free service and therefore there was nothing on the P&L for it. And when I started getting bills, I was like, what the heck is this? I didn't expect it (laughs) and found out, oh, I was on this little free period that I didn't know about. That's also tough though. I'm sure you guys talked to a lot of people and you had professors who had connections. So you probably had some good mentors. But to me, it's almost like if you can find a mentor in the space, in the fast food or QSR space, if that's what someone's focusing on. But if it's fitness, find a fitness franchisee and just try to ask them these kinds of questions like, hey, what should I be looking for? What has happened to you? Because otherwise, I would never have thought of that. And I don't see why you guys would have ever had to have thought of that either. So absolutely. And franchisees, existing ones are great resource. And again, you can go to the FDDs and find these contact info and reach out to people. And by and large, they're you know small business entrepreneurs and they're excited to talk about their business and they're excited to help somebody young start on their career path. And frankly, they're excited about having someone who's going to bring new energy and capital into the system and make the business better for everyone. So we found people were generally pretty helpful and, and friendly in that regard. Two other things I would mention, we talked about bringing an operator into the business when you don't have that experience. In some cases, we looked at businesses that were big enough that they had existing operations teams, and we expected that we would just retain those people after buying the business. In other cases, we knew we needed to bring an operator to the business, and we worked with a great recruiter who helped us find some of those candidates And those people were just a wealth of information because obviously they're evaluating, do I want to work with these people and do I want to work on this portfolio at the same time that you're evaluating their strengths and the strengths of whatever deal you may be looking at. So they can help you tremendously in diligence if you go that way. With existing operators, you're probably not going to get access to talk to them until the deal is very far along because understandably a business owner doesn't want to tell their team six months before they may sell, hey, I'm thinking about selling my business. Why don't you talk to these guys? Because those people are going to be on the market looking for new jobs when they find that out. For sure. Even with those first seven, did you say that was a corporate store before? No, those were franchised one owner. He ran the business with his wife and then they had a district manager who was sort of the day-to-day ops person overseeing the in-store activities. You had some uh, improvements to the business that were fortunate timing. Was it after you saw that those were kind of successfully up and running and you had a feel for everything as far as just how you were going to manage it and just being in tune with turnover and other aspects of the business that maybe were cautionary for you at the start? When did you feel comfortable to say, I'm going to go out and try to acquire more? So the first thing we did was develop new units ourselves, actually. So as part of doing this deal, we signed an agreement with Wingstop to keep the territory rights for Columbus, Ohio. So I had about six months to get my feet wet and understand the business and become an operator before I needed to start finding locations and working on developing new units. We opened our first two new units uh, about 12 and 14 months after buying the business. And we developed five restaurants. All right. So you went 
acquire seven, build five, and then you went back to acquiring. So what did you learn during the new build process, right? Because it's obviously a lot different than buying an existing Wingstop location. Was there support for you on construction, real estate selection, all that type of stuff? There was. And that can be super valuable and probably more so if you're coming into the industry or the brand new for the first time, because you really have no idea unless you came from a construction background or something, what you're doing on that front. For me, it was even better because we had the experience of running the seven units to kind of know where there were things with the layout of the restaurant, the equipment in the restaurant, et cetera, that we did or didn't like. Obviously, a franchise brand is going to require you to do a lot of things. The restaurant has to look a certain way. It has to have a certain amount of equipment, but at least gave me the comfort and the experience to push back and say, hey, this is how our current restaurant is. We think this would be really helpful. Can we do this differently than how you would do it? One of the big examples is the original developer had used a grease recycling system on the fryers. So rather than have to manually dump old grease into buckets, which is really dangerous, it's hot, it can spill, it can burn you easily, and then carry it out the back and pour it into another container, he set up automatic systems that pumped it right out of the fryers, right into a vat in the back. It gets automatically picked up. It's beautiful. It's a great extra source of revenue because we get paid for it. I wouldn't have known that that existed and the standard Wingstop package didn't include it. So that was a super fortunate thing to discover the developer who was a lot more experienced with franchises before Wingstop even had done that already. And I was able to keep it going. So you asked corporate for basically ability to include that in your new build. Correct. Yeah. It wasn't in the standard package, but it's something that they absolutely accommodate for people who want it. And I think it has since become a standard piece, I think. That sounds like a win for everyone. Safer for operators. That's cool. These are the things that like nobody knows about until you're actually like in the weeds operating it. So that's awesome to hear. So you built another five and started acquiring again after that. I mean, how was your approach to just financing these? Is it all debt? If it is, how scary is that debt? You know, did you ever raise equity? Talk me through that. Yeah. So we have a great relationship with our bank, Huntington Bank. They have an awesome team. So they financed our recent acquisition. They financed a lot of our development. We actually, our initial loan came from a different bank that we refinanced out about 18 months in and just took advantage of much lower interest rates. So they've been a huge partner and the majority of the capital has come from that. Additional capital has come from the business just generating cash and reinvesting it aggressively. You know, a nice thing that you can say to a brand, hopefully truthfully, as a younger person coming into it is, I don't have a very big finance need for my lifestyle. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have private school expenses. I don't have a mortgage. I live in a rental, et cetera, et cetera. So I can reinvest all of this money into the business In the last acquisition, there was a little bit of need for additional capital, which I raised. But outside of that, it's really waiting for the next deal. And we'll see how much money we can make towards that in the process. Yeah. And just to illustrate, I mean, kind of what can happen in these deals. Have you had to personally guarantee it? Or after the acquisition of the first five, is it more using that as collateral to keep levering up and financing new deals? Good question. The loan is personally guaranteed. I personally don't find that very scary because... Most, if not all of my assets are in this business. So if it goes under, I'm not going to have that much more that the <laughs> bank can come and collect on. Yeah, yeah. We do have an agreement that, you know, over time that guarantee can come off if the business continues to perform successfully. There sort of seem to be tiers in the franchise lending space that come with different attributes. So when we did the initial deal, 
well under a million of EBITDA. There's not a ton of traditional lenders that are interested in loans that small on, on businesses that small. So that tends to go more SBA. Ours happened to not be. It was, I think, just a lucky find, but that's probably the exception, not the rule. In sort of that mid-tier of two to five million in EBITDA, there is a huge group of established lenders who have franchise-specific groups that know these brands well, have lent on them before. Those loans are probably still going to be personally guaranteed at that business size, but you may be able to trade off a higher rate or some other terms in order to, to get rid of that. And then when you get north of $5 million, now you can call Chase and Wells Fargo and Bank of America and like the big banks that you've heard of, because that's when they start to do those on the more, it's not really institutional, but on the much bigger level. And those are loans that tend not to have personal guarantees because the business is big and robust enough that they feel the collateral itself is enough. It's something that everyone's got to be comfortable with. And I've seen so many different franchisees do it differently, where some just from the get-go try to raise money because they're not comfortable with the amount of leverage, whereas I guess others like you, right, you're okay with it. And also, I think the brand probably plays a major role, right? You're in Wingstop, which is very established, and it's just a different ball game. when you know, I've had franchisees on this show or you know things I talk about in the newsletter where it's an emerging brand with like 10 locations open and 100 in development. And it's still like, like who knows what's going to happen with it. It goes back to what you said before, where from a search fund perspective, there is a much higher chance that those things don't succeed than buying a business where I've seen for the last five years, it's made X dollars and it's continued to grow. That gives me and that gives lenders a heck of a lot more comfort that there's going to be something here for a long time. So today, how many wing stops do you have? Uh, we have 19 today. And are they all in Ohio or are they separate states? Yep. So we are the franchisee for Columbus, Ohio and Cincinnati. Okay. And moving forward, what is the goal? Do you plan on getting into new brands? Are you happy staying within Wingstop? You know, have you guys thought about that? The goal is absolutely to continue growing. We have signed up to develop a lot more restaurants in those two markets with Wingstop, and we're working on that right now. So hopefully, in addition to those new built units, we'll continue to buy units in other markets. I really like this buy a few units in a market, have an established presence and existing cash flow there, and then continue to build it out from their approach. You know, if you think even within Wingstop, if I were to go into a new city where there are no restaurants at all today, I'm going to want a market director who's kind of at that senior level in the market. He's going to be expensive. There's not going to be any restaurants cash flowing to cover that salary. So it's going to be, you know, a big startup investment to get those first few units off the ground and running profitably. It's a lot easier, obviously more expensive to buy restaurants. You can still do that at a price that I think generates a really reasonable, if not great return, and then keep building out from there, but having that cash flow to start. And then as far as other brands, I never say never, but my thinking right now is that we've spent a ton of time and effort developing expertise and relationships within Wingstop. And so our ability to put money towards another Wingstop deal and be effective with that is so much greater than if we had to come in and learn an entire new system and new processes and whatnot. So the only way I could really see doing a deal in another brand is if it was substantially large enough from day one that there was a big experienced team behind it and not just like I did in the early days of Wingstop, Michael walking through the back of a Little Caesars and learning how to make pizza or Michael having to figure out how to place a food order through the Taco Bell POS system or something like that. I don't want to do that again. I can see exactly why. And then I also think, you know, you read about 
these big multi-unit operators, sometimes within food, sometimes without food, and they have a collection of brands. And, you know, I w- always wonder how they get it done. But within food, there's this person who lately I've been, <laughs> I've been tweeting or writing about him a lot. Have you heard of Guillermo Perales? Only because of your thread. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Huh? Sweet. This guy, I mean, you don't... Arby's, Popeyes, some brands I've never even heard of, like Taco Bueno, which is apparently big down in the Texas area, Papa John's, you know, you name it, Long John Silver's, like, it's ridiculous, it's 1,200 total locations. I gotta imagine he's just built up such a robust organization where he probably has directors who just handle one brand so that he's not having to know the ins and outs of of every single franchise because of what you just said. There's also a lot of brand-specific things and you're absolutely a better operator for knowing them at a really granular level. And it's a lot of work to build that expertise. You have the acquisition strategy down and something I've learned from a previous franchise owner who's in the automotive industry, Brian Beers, who is also on this show. He owns like 29 Midas franchises. He's leveraged that, you know, that closed network system where it's easier to keep acquiring because you can prove to owners, hey, I'm a good operator. I know what I'm doing. You build a reputation within the system and it's an easier way to expand versus going out to new brands and kind of do have to prove yourself and not start over again. But in a sense, you know, you're not as established as you are within Wingstop where like you already have 19. For sure. It makes diligence so much easier and different. We're actually under LOI to buy a single unit right now. So that'll be our 20th. And for that acquisition, I basically needed the historical sales, the historical food cost reports and the lease. And that was about it because I know every other thing that he's doing, I'm going to replace with the vendors we want to work with, the operational processes we want to work with, etc. So whether he's paying X dollars for his towel service right now doesn't really matter to me. I'm going to get my own vendor and I know what I'm going to pay. Yeah. And I know you said this before, but can you just remind me, when did you first buy your first seven wing stops? What year was that? May 2018. All right. So 2018, about four years later. And within four years, now you have that much experience where you're so much more confident going into evaluating new wing stops relative to the first time around. No doubt about it. And a lot of that would translate as well to buying into another restaurant brand as well. But as far as kind of feeling like I know everything, I would certainly say I don't. And actually, one of the things that I'd love to do more and see more out of Wingstop, and I don't know if there are other brands that are best in class for this, but I've got a great group of other franchisees or Wingstop calls them brand partners in the Ohio area that I talk to frequently. And it is so helpful to just compare, hey, you know, this is what we're seeing. Our numbers went in this direction. We're struggling with that. Are you seeing the same thing? Did you figure out a way to deal with this problem better? And I think there's such a wealth of information out there. There's so many entrepreneurial people experimenting with this stuff every day, finding out about the grease trap recycling or the used grease recycling, all these sorts of things that the more you talk to people, the more you're going to benefit and the more you're going to learn. There's always someone who's figured out something to do that you haven't yet. There's a lot of power, even across different brands, I think, in aggregating just that knowledge and and crowdsourcing it. And that has not been lost on me. So if you're listening to this, possible product slash community offering coming from The Wolf to try to provide that service for folks. But outside of my self-plug there, I'm curious to know, and in, in wrapping up here, I have the Wingstop FDD out in front of me, and I'm seeing in 2021 for franchised restaurants, for the ones that were open the all for all of 2021, the average revenue per location was close to 1.6 million. It's about 1.575. So there's 
some folks have some beef and I've admittedly contributed at times where the mindset is avoid fast food. Yes, they're the most popular brands. And yeah, it would be cool to say you own a McDonald's or a Burger King or whatever, but they're some of the most expensive to build. And it's fast food slash QSR, which typically has the lowest margins. But at those revenues, you know, 1.5 plus, that's pretty solid. That's a very good average. Generally, what could someone hope to take home as an owner on something like that? And, you know, typically I say 10% is what you should expect for a good fast food brand. Yeah. So one thing that we you know didn't talk about before, but part of the reason we picked Wingstop was really believe that they have best in class unit economics in terms of what it costs to build a unit versus what it can do profitability. Wingstop talks publicly about this idea of getting to a 50% return on your business, which is absolutely unheard of for almost any QSR brand. And not that everyone is going to be able to hit that or everyone can hit it right away, but it's one of the few brands where you could say that that is absolutely within the realm of possibility. On a million five restaurant, I would say the restaurant level should be doing somewhere probably in the low to mid-teens profitability. You're then going to have corporate expenses over that. So if you own a single restaurant, you don't have any other employees beyond your store team, that's all you got. If you have, like we do, 20 units, we've got a controller, an accounting assistant, a vice president of operations, district managers, et cetera. So all that stuff comes off after the store level. But yeah, I would say getting to 10% after all your corporate expenses is absolutely a reasonable, if not for Wingstop, maybe a bit on the low end. Just speaking from my experience, I don't represent Wingstop or anything like that. So put that disclaimer in there. I do want to mention one other thing that I thought of when you brought that up, which is Another big aspect to consider as you're looking at different brands is even big national brands have big variations geographically. So Wingstop started in Texas in the 1990s. It is a very different brand perception in Dallas, their headquarters, than it is in Ohio because it's been there 30 years instead of 10. And the corporate headquarters is there. They have enough restaurants that they can sponsor. I think they sponsored the Dallas Stars hockey team last year. Like they do things that we don't have the scale to do in Ohio. And so naturally, a Dallas restaurant generally is going to make more money than a Columbus restaurant. I bought into the Ohio market because I believe that over time we will catch up and get on that same level. But you're definitely going to see those variations. Another really notable one that you'll encounter if you look at the Dunkin' Donuts system is on the East Coast, Dunkin' Donuts is a coffee brand. And so coffee is a very profitable thing to sell. Those restaurants make a lot of money. On the West Coast, as Dunkin' has expanded, it's not well known for coffee. It's known for donuts. Those are not as profitable. And so a Dunkin' in California doing the same amount of sales as a Dunkin' in Boston is going to have a very different level of profitability. And there are brands that have and don't have that element. That's an amazing point is to understand where and it's probably most applicable, right, for these big brands, but like where the, the really the heart of it is and where it started, because you're dead, right? I mean, Duncan with New Englanders, and I went to college up in New England. It is everywhere. People obsess over it. They want Duncan. Ben Affleck, famous Boston actor, right? Like every movie he's in, I think it's a rule that he has. And he's not even a brand representative of Duncan, but he just likes to, I don't know why, it's just part of his image at this point. And go watch Goodwill Hunting or any other movie with him. You'll see scenes where he's picking up Duncan with coffee and all that. But no, it's a really good point. And, you know, I had a Mellow Mushroom franchisee on as the first guest ever for this podcast, which that's a smaller brand. 
but regional pizza chain, got about a couple hundred locations, started in Atlanta and his locations are in the Atlanta area. So, and he mentioned, he's like, hey, like I have the benefit of, I'm right by where corporate started. Like it's known, it is a known thing in Atlanta. But yeah, I mean, you're totally right with, I didn't even realize Wingstop was started in Texas, but it is key to think about that and just what kind of education or perception your brand might have in the market you're targeting. Absolutely. You're kind of throwing a lot of that money down the tubes. So you want to make sure that it's being developed in a place that either has or can have relatively quickly a lot of brand awareness. Definitely. All right, Michael, this has been an awesome conversation. I mean, the amount of stuff you shared relating to a bunch of different food brands is going to be great for the audience to hear. Where can people follow you going forward if they want to ask you questions or just watch your journey as you grow your Wingstops? Yeah, thank you. I have a lot to live up to in uh, making my Twitter presence as good as yours, but I am at M-A Horowitz, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z, and I will do my best to uh, respond to people and answer questions if possible. But thank you so much for having me. This is awesome what you've been doing. I've been following you for a while, and it's cool to see you taught me a bunch of stuff about franchises and brands I didn't know about. So uh, you're doing an awesome thing here. Appreciate it, Michael. Seriously, that means a lot. And yeah, guys, we'll have his Twitter handle in the show notes so that you can follow along if you want to do that. But yeah, Michael, great to have you again. And we'll talk soon, all right? Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.